Hello and welcome to the Everything Is Black and White podcast. We are back with another episode of Gibbo's Corner. I'm Andrew Musgrove and as per, joined by John Gibson. We're going to talk about John's top 10 Newcastle United captains. Mm. Now, regular listeners of this podcast will know back in 2019, we did do an episode called The Greatest Newcastle United Captains, where John talked us through some of the best to ever wear the armband for Newcastle United, but we didn't do a definite list. And this is the list. This is John's top 10 from 10 to 1. And he's going to spell out just why the person who is at the top of the list makes it there. He's going to talk about some who didn't make it in the top 10. And we're going to talk about everyone in between. John, for those listening, just explain how you've based your list. What have you based your list on? Yeah, it's very difficult and it's fascinating. And that's what I love, especially in the summertime. Newcastle fans love because uh, things like this. Because nobody's right and nobody's wrong. It's a matter of opinion, but football so often is. I mean, there's several criterias for a good captain. One is the obvious, where um, you lead by example, i.e. you're such a good player that you have so much respect that people just fall in the line behind you and off the go. The other is that you drive teams, you drive players, that you're this, you know, this iron fist, you're vocal, you're, you're shouting at people, telling them what to do, etc., etc. There's that sort of leadership. And um, we've had both sorts make my 10 uh, and very extreme. I'm, I'm desperately now not trying to give you examples <laughs> because they're, they're about to come. But there's great extremes between those who just led purely because they were so, so good and had so much respect that automatically everyone followed them and there was the the line leader who was churchillian uh in his speech and his toughness mm. two sorts but both if can be very effective before we got on to number 10 you might remember in the last episode of give us corner john talked us through his top 10 favorite newcastle united goals and we got you guys to vote on john's list and we're going to get you guys to do the same here with john's top 10 captains but uh, I'll just briefly run through the results of the top 10 goals. So um, we asked you guys to vote on John's list. So I'll read John's list out first. It went Bob Monker in the second leg of the first cup final, then Chick Teori against Arsenal, Hatton Ben Arfa's goal against Blackburn in the FA Cup, David Ginola against Ferenc Veros in the UEFA Cup, Peter Beardsley's chip against Brighton, Pape Sisi's second against Chelsea, Shira's volley against Everton, then we had Jackie Milburn's first goal in the 1951 FA Cup final. Max goal against Leicester, which no one saw, but apparently everybody saw because um, everyone was at St. <laughs> James's Park. And then Philip Albert's chip against Manchester United in that 5-0 thumping at St. James's Park was Gibbo's top one. Now, the list that you guys voted on, and, and thousands of you did, it went Moncur, Teoti, Milburn. So Milburn dropped from John in third down to eighth with a punters. And that might be because... Perhaps the, the I audience. Think, I think age comes yeah, into younger. it. If if you get people from long, long ago, they'll be reduced in ratings. The same will happen with skippers. Yeah, the the older skippers will fall down the list. Yeah, Supermark was seventh. So that's another one that fell away. Um, David Ginola, Peter Beardsley, Hatton Ben Arfa, Cici, Shira, and Albert. So Shira moved up from fourth to second. Uh, Albert though kept the top spot 
which that surprised a few it, people. It surprised me. You, I think. It did yes. I remember yeah. sending the yeah. send the list. I, do. I was I, do. I was I was I a little do. bit shocked. Um, but there it is, and we really are appreciative of you guys getting involved. And the same will happen here. We, I will put the link into the podcast notes, and then Gibbo will do an article as well, just promoting this. And then we'll get you guys to vote, and then we'll wrap the vote up. And I'm really intrigued to see um, if you agree with John's list and. There we go. Without further ado, John, let's get into number ten. Who have you gone well, for? Can can I mention first all the ones who are not the in ones it? That aren't in it because we we haven't just had ten great skippers throughout 130 years or nigh on 130 years. We've had quite a few, and before we get inundated with people saying, "Did you not know he existed and he existed and he existed?" I like quickly to pay lip service to one or two they didn't make it. Um, this guy would fall through uh, the memory bank because it's Bill McCracken and that's so far ago, but it's when Newcastle had a huge, huge side and won everything. They won the title regularly, they played in cup finals regularly, the Edwardian side, which was rather difficult because a lot of players stayed in that side throughout the whole period of, of this trophy winning but they changed the skipper from time to time. McCracken skippered uh, Bill McCracken, who's the, the guy I want to give the honourable mention to, but didn't skipper all the time. I mean, he's got to get a mention in anything you do at Newcastle United because he was so good as a player that they had to change the offside law to stop him strangling the game. They changed the offside law in 1925 because Bill McCracken had mastered it so cleverly that nobody could score against Newcastle in games were becoming extremely dull. We talk about negative uh, tactics these days and um, the Steve Bruce side and uh, Mike Ashley, etc. They should have been around when Bill McCracken was in his pump. Uh, he devised the offside thing with Frank Hudspeth, who was another Newcastle skipper, and um, they were so successful. It, it, there was a silent film reel made in 1920 by McCracken Showing you how he organised the offside uh, uh, laws. The offside law, as it stood, that McCracken exploited, three opponents had to be between the forward and the goal. Uh, and they had to change it to two. Because with three, all McCracken did was step forward from full back every time with his arm raised in the air. Uh, he had mastered it so much. There was a game against Notts County where pitches were 100 yards long, but play was confined into an area that was no longer in the cricket pitch, 22 yards. They, all the players in that, all four full-backs, because Notts County were the other side that did it magnificently, all four full-backs stood within 10 yards of the centre line and just uh, every, and so did all the players were in that, bar the two goalkeepers were in that crowded space. And... The game was so negative, so awful to watch that they, they decided they must do, the authorities decided they must do something about it. And McCracken was such a personality and was so hated everywhere bar up here because of what he did that then every time we played away, he got pelted with fruit and veg uh, from the punters. It reminds you of the old cabbage head situation at Aston Villa, doesn't it? When, uh, but uh, he got pelted with fruit and veg. He said, more fruit than you could get in a greengrocer's shop. He reckoned the trade went up outside the greengrocers, outside of every away ground, because they wanted to throw things at McCracken. Um, but he was a bit of a lad. He, 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 was, he was a character, shall we say. Uh, at 16, 
he was attacked by fans because he punched an opposing player. Uh, in a 21-year career at Newcastle, and remember how good he was, he only got 14 island caps because he had a row with the Irish FA over appearance money. Uh, at the time, England were played a tenner per international, which was big money then, not now. And Ireland were only paid two quid, so he said, I'm not playing for Ireland when we're only getting two quid, and England are getting ten quid. He made 444 appearances, starting in 1904. Not always a skipper, but he won three First Division titles, won FA Cup and played in two other finals. Uh, he was a skipper. He deserves an honourable mention, as does Frank Hudspeth, who was his co-conspirator. You mentioned there that they sometimes changed the Skippers, captains. Skippers, yeah. I mean, now we have we have one captain pretty much for every team, and you have vice-captains, but if that captain's fit and in form, then he's skipping. Out and out. So why do you think, why do you think the change... Happened. What what was it that you think teams or managers suddenly went? Okay, we need we need one visible leader with the armband. Uh, nowadays, you mean as yeah, opposed to as then? Opposed to back then. Yeah, I mean then they had several leaders, and you've got to bear in mind in those days, Andrew, they didn't have a manager. A committee picked the team, and therefore they they did the same on the pitch. If you like, they had a committee, which would be the senior players of McCracken of. Colin Veach, of Frank Hudspeth, etc., etc., who ran the team as a committee. You could, that's not going to work in the modern day, and very quickly, the same as it wasn't going to work not having the manager. Mm. I mean, that was going to have to change, and that changed for Newcastle around the early 50s when they won the FA Cup. We'd had a couple of managers in before that, but after 55, we had managers all the way and we had skippers all the way as well. Do you think being captain of a club today matters more than it did, say, back in the area of Hutsberth or, or McCracken when you had other people to step in? I mean, I mean, now we you look at Newcastle today, you've got Jamal Lascelles, you've got a vice-captain of maybe John Joe Shelby, Peter Wonkew and Trippier's captain. Yeah. But when yep. you talk to someone like Jamal Lascelles, you can see he's very proud to be Newcastle United oh, captains. Oh, I, I think it has a huge dignity and has huge status symbol without a shadow of doubt. I think every modern team... I mean, if you go back to the 50s and 60s teams, the captain was the number one guy. He was the manager on the field. The minute they left the dressing room, the manager was the skipper. Um, I think nowadays the best sides have more than one captain they only have one named captain but more than one leader and you look at Newcastle United there might have been Lascelles and, and uh, John Joe Shelby but you would you would look at Trippier you would look at Bruno you would look at Matt Ritchie when he used to be in the side and say these guys are our leaders and there's much more than one leader these days but there's got to be not just to flick the coin, there's got to be... The skipper has got to have a lot more than just flipping a coin. He has got to command the respect of all his players on the field and he's got to be tactically astute and he's got to, he's got to be the manager on the pitch. Stand no flack, I'm the governor, if I say do that, you do that. And the only person he's responsible to is the manager at half-time and full-time. Uh, but it's very, very important and probably more so as time went on than say in 1902 or 3 or 4 or 5 when Newcastle were really successful they, they, they didn't have a manager and they had several skippers and they didn't have a manager and a committee picked the team 
in the committee had never played for they were all Dodery guys that had all held all the shares and they picked the team it's quite amazing to uh, to think and famously going off at a tangent on this was the cup final in 55 when one of the first Newcastle managers uh, picked a side Livingston that didn't include Jackie Milburn and Stan Seymour who had managed the side and who was the chairman just took one look at it, ripped the piece of paper up, threw it in the basket, put Milburn back in the side, and he scored in 42 seconds, and uh, Livingstone got the sack very soon after that. Can you imagine that happening today? Ashley looking at the side picked by his manager and uh, ripping it up, putting it in the wastepaper basket and say, you know, I'm playing two goalkeepers. Um, quite ridiculous, but yes, the skipper was... Uh, was moved about in those days and and funny enough the guy that i wanted to mention after mccracken was frank hudspeth who was also his co-conspirator in putting together the offside trap uh another huge um uh, servant if 444 games for mccracken 472 games it left back over 19 years for frank hudspeth who has a flag to wave um, as a skipper because 1924 FA Cup winning skipper he was the, that skipper at the age of 34 I mean he was he was like wine the longer it went on the better he got I mean he was 34 when Newcastle won the cup in 1924 he was almost 36 when he got his first England cap can you believe that he was almost 36 the oldest debutant ever at the time he was 37 when Newcastle won the first division title, 1924, he wasn't skipper by then. Uh, but the older he got, the better he got. He was a Percy Main lad who was a penalty kick expert. Uh, wonderful, wonderful player. Had his moment of glory because he was skipper at Wembley in a pouring rain. I remember a pitch of him standing on the pitch at Wembley, hold, proudly holding a cup, and next to him was a copper who has is, is got a, um, uh, a raincoat yeah. round, the, round his shoulders tight and it's sopping wet. And uh, there's the proud skipper with the cup. Wonderful time. Uh, quickly, three more mentions. Jimmy Nelson, who um, won the FA Cup with Newcastle, was skipper in 1932. Uh, he was capped by Scotland. He was a member of the Wembley Wizards of 1928, the famous Wembley Wizards that destroyed England. Um, Jimmy was a good player he'd won the FA Cup with Cardiff in 1927 which was the first time the trophy ever went outside of England the FA the a trophy which was the FA Cup into Wales of course uh, two more modern skippers deserve an honourable mention Mick Martin who captained Newcastle and the Republic of Ireland 1978-83 was his time came from a family of footballers his dad Con Martin was a legend in Ireland he played for Manchester United and West Brom before he come up here um, I got to know him well he lived in we both lived in Wickham at the time uh, Mick still does um, and we used to drink in one of the, the pubs down there uh, and um, he had a great touch on the ball he was a dainty player a lovely touch on the ball the fans uh christened him zico who was the brazilian superstar at the time uh, i always remember when <laughs> when wickham got to the final of the fa vars the local side uh, and i suddenly thought you know it's we're doing a story for the cron and i thought you know what 
a lot of people won't know any of the players in the Wickham side because they're non-league and you weren't. it wasn't the top of non-league that was the trophy of ours were for the teams further down and I said I thought to myself there's a lot of famous people live in Wickham as it happens so I come up with the idea the team behind the team and I put together all the people that were relatively well known that lived in Wickham which included myself I lived in Wickham at the time and I I thought, we'll have a bit of fun. So I went to Newcastle United and they agreed to give us a set of black and white strips. And I got a team of 11 personalities that lived in Wickham, stuck them all, in, including myself, in a Newcastle United strip. And we went on to St. James's Park, lined up as a team, and had my photograph taken. And there was more famous faces in that team than there was in the one that went to Wembley. Mind you, they weren't as fit as those. I <laughs> mean, just mentioning a couple of names that were in, Mick Martin was in, which is why I'm mentioning it. He lived there at the time. And Nigel Walker, that played for Newcastle, were two players that lived in Wickham and were in that team. Mike Neville, who was a very, very famous television presenter, both at BBC and I and Tyne Tees, uh, he was the real superstar, really. He was in that team. And Alan Hull of Lindisfarne, who wrote all the great Lindisfarne songs, etc., was in that team as well. So there was a lot of fun to be had then. I mean, Mick went on to become Newcastle assistant manager, was on local radio, and is still a Republic of Ireland scout to this day. The one mention other, Colo, Fabrizio Colaccini, got to be mentioned, 2008 to 2016, 275 games all in. Uh, looked like a brillo pad with that haircut, if you remember him, the old bushy hair. Good skipper. He was voted uh, Northeast Footballer of the Year 2011. He got in the PFA Team of the Year. And he only retired in 2021 at the age of 39 back home. But he has got to be remembered amongst the modern skippers as one of the better ones. Mm. Especially because it, you had a tough start to life, of course, in Newcastle and getting relegated. But he, he bounced back. You know, m- most yeah. people, you know, if they start the way he did, they, they might they, cry they off. Especially yeah. foreign players that aren't yeah. used to the to the situation in this country, etc., etc. Yes, it was tough going for him at times, and there were, there was times. I mean. Um, that uh, he, he could have gone under. Mm. But like a cork, he kept bouncing back. The championship seemed to do him a world of good, didn't it? It seemed yes. to yeah, toughen him up slightly. So, without yeah. a shadow of a doubt. But yes, I mean, he will be remembered fondly in in that side. And I think he was probably in the side to finish fifth top. Mm. Um, he, he, he did well for Newcastle United. He doesn't make my top 10, but he deserves an honourable mention. Definitely. We'll get on to the first of your yeah. top 10. And we've... We've done an episode on this gentleman, sadly no longer with us. It's it, it's Glenn Roder that you've gone for. It is. And a real servant to Newcastle on and off the pitch. But as a captain, John, just sum up his attributes. Yeah, he, he was a natural leader of men. You can look at some players and you think, he would make a captain and he will make a manager afterwards. And you're not always right. Because uh, I remember famously with my two centre-forwards, I thought John Tudor would make a, a manager and I thought Malcolm McDonald would never in the month of Sundays made a manager. Tudor was never given the opportunity to be a manager, wanted to be one. Uh, Super Mac was very, very successful at Fulham as a manager. So you never know. But you looked at Glenn Warder and you thought, he's a leader of men and I think he will go on um, he had quiet authority. He had a, 
an aloofness, if you like, about him. He, he, he came to us, he was, he, he was an elegant player. I mean, I swear the, the hair in his head never went out of the place during a match. Uh, a bit like Alan Hansen um, at Liverpool. Um, he just had that authority about him. He was the last piece of Arthur Cox's jigsaw for the promotion side of 84 when it, when Newcastle were in the biggest doldrums they'd been in an awful long time in the second division going nowhere quick and the sleeping giant was woken up by Kevin Keegan and then we got, uh, it was the Keegan Waddle Beardsley forward line um, and McDermott, McCreary and finally Rhoda came into that side um, it was <sighs> Why he was such a, an elegant centre-half? He would actually be in a midfielder who was converted into a centre-half. So he had that ability to play as well as stop other people playing. He was tall, very upright in his stance, the way he played, very elegant. And he had this double shuffle, which the crowd loved, which he didn't do for any apparent reason. I mean, he just did it because it got no lay. I mean, there was probably... You know, now if you, you get up close, close on somebody, you shuffle left and right to send them the wrong way and you go past them. He did a double shuffle when there wasn't anybody within 15 yards of him. It just looked good. You, um, mean, you, you mentioned there a bit like Alan Hansen. Obviously, Alan Hansen played around the same time. Mm, he, he's, he's, mm. he's, you know, he's, he's held up as this fantastic centre-back of the, of the game. Obviously, successor of Liverpool, Mark Lawrenson as well. Did Glenn Rudder get the, the praise and adulation you think he, he, he deserved back then? I don't think he did nationally. Um, I, I think that he, there was a great realisation wherever he played club-wise that he, he had this calmness about him. Um, you know, when everybody was going 100 miles an hour, he would just be there, very elegant, get the ball down, calm down, boys, I'll just do my little shuffle, play it out there and off you go. I mean, he had skipped Orient and QPR before he come to Newcastle, he'd, he'd skip at QPR at Wembley in 1982. Ironically, uh, that game ended in a draw and he was banned and didn't play in the, in, in the replay, but he'd skip it aside at Wembley before he come to Newcastle. Um, he was here six seasons, 219 games, 10 goals. Um, and I got to know him well. Uh, this Wickham in those days was the enclave where Newcastle United players went. Mick Martin become a friend there. Rhoda was another one who lived in Wickham. We used to go down to the local pub on a on a Sunday night where they they had the singing on and um, have a have a terrific time. And the interesting thing was that why you thought he was a good captain and he would make a good manager is that he didn't just think about himself. He thought about the team and he was particularly strong on protecting and encouraging young players. And he actually became Gaza's protector. He, he, I mean, in a crude way, you would say he was, he, he was his minder. Um, but it, it wasn't for his physical ability to smack anybody that come up to smack Gaza. It was more giving Gaza the right encouragement to stay on the right lines. The kind of guiding voice. And I mean... With them, with the players in that team, you mentioned Keegan, Waddle Beatty, mm. all these really talented players. Yeah, and I think people that didn't know Glenn, so I, I count myself in that. You would look at him, and think he was he was quite a quiet character. So how did he make? I mean, first of all, is that the right assumption of him? And if so, yes, how it, did he yes, make? His, how did he make his voice stand out amongst those big stars? He wasn't an extrovert uh, at all. Um, 
I mean, a few of them went very quickly, you've got to remember. Keegan, when they brought um, Rhoda in, Keegan played out the season for promotion and disappeared. And then we suddenly start selling what will be Edsley and Gascoigne. Uh, so very quickly those people were going. But long before that, his authority, his calmness, his fact that he was interested in you. Um, he wasn't just interested in himself. And he, he, there was 10 years in age between him and Paul Gascoigne. And yet he became Paul Gascoigne's confidant. Uh, Gaza trusted him, looked up to him, and liked him because he was so serious and... Gaza could play all these silly tricks on him and make him burst out laughing, but he still loved him. They were totally opposites, but they, they went together. And he became the guy, as Skipper, who Newcastle employed to look after Gaza. And he got he had an arrangement. Paul Montgomery, who was a big, big mate of mine, as you know, and become a top, top scout uh, in football, and actually scouted for Glenn Roder later on when Glenn was at West Ham. Uh, at the time, Paul Montgomery used to run the Tuxedo Nightclub in town, which is the place where all us boys used to go to uh, as our watering hole. And Glen Roder had a, a, a relationship with Monty that whenever Gascoigne went in the club, Monty would give Roder a ring. Uh, now it wasn't the snitch on Gaza because he shouldn't be there often Rhoda would give it an hour and just wander into the club himself just to make certain he was okay not to pull him out or that he shouldn't be there because he wasn't going the night before a game but I mean he was like a magnet Gaza he attracted all the lunatics and he was always one step off being in huge trouble so it was to put an arm around him and pull him out of that and um I mean, I I used to see Gaza walk in and say, oh, oh, the bloke I'm with, let's take bets. Quarter of an hour before uh, Roder comes in, half an hour before Roder, 45 minutes there, and we all took a bet, and then in Pierre Glen, hi, Gaza, how are you doing? And Gaza never worked out. It's amazing how he keeps coming there, you know. He thought he was as big a, a nightclub bunny as he was. A man I've got a lot of affection for that I remember very well, um not the extrovert that perhaps some people would accuse me of being, uh, would certainly accuse uh, uh, Gaza of being, etc., but quiet authority, was quiet, but you knew who was in charge, and it was Glenn, and he, he deserves to make the list, in my opinion. Yeah, terrific captain, and uh, many of the listeners no doubt would have seen Glenn playing for Newcastle and will remember him fondly. Uh, dearly missed there as John mentioned on to number 9 and it is another modern day captain in many yeah, ways yeah, and yeah. It's, it's, it's Rob Lee who was Rob in, Lee, yeah. in a team as well of leaders as well he was in a yes, team where there was 3 or 4 potential that's captains that's what we were talking about Andrew I mean you know if you take his time up here he was in the entertainers when you could name how he was capable of being a captain Venison was capable of captain Keegan obviously uh had been a captain, um, Alan Shearer was captain. So they had loads of leaders. Uh, but, you know, it was after the entertainers um, that he became skipper of Newcastle from 1997 to 99. 
and it was under Kenny Dalglish. It was he was here when he was bought by Keegan, but his his successful spell as captain was two seasons, ninety seven to ninety nine, under Kenny Dalglish when Newcastle were Premier League runners up for the second time. Um, now he was a Rob was a very underrated captain because he led by example. He wasn't a tub thumper. He, he didn't have the iron fist. He didn't bark orders all over the ground. He led by example. He was very different to Joe Harvey and, and, and Bob Munker, two other Newcastle skippers. Uh, and I think one of the reasons he'd become underrated as a skipper was because his very best pal, Alan Shearer, who they went everywhere together, um, stole his limelight as Big Alan stole everybody's limelight uh, doing everything from scoring goals to being a, a skipper I mean Rob was very quiet but unmovable I mean unmovable to the extent where you could uh, say he was stubborn I mean once he made up his mind on something and, you know nothing on heaven or earth was going to change things like that but I mean Keegan summed up the worth of Rob Leet in Newcastle when he said if Rob plays well, Newcastle play well. Uh, and 381 games, 56 goals, tells its uh, its own story. I mean, he came to us as a winger, having had a, a, a super career at Charlton. He came to us as a winger, but he didn't have the pace to play on the wing. He wasn't quick. Uh, he was anything but quick. But switched inside, his brain was quick, his legs weren't switched inside to a more central midfield role he was he blossomed into an England international you'll remember he scored a hat-trick against Antwerp in the UEFA Cup in 94 um, he, he was quality and quality on the ball uh, Wood Hullard didn't think so um, but then Wood Hullard didn't like anybody that was a close friend of Alan Shearer's and he tried to sque he tried to tell me at one stage that Alan Shearer wasn't a world-class player and a world-class finisher. Now, I respect Rudy Hullard because as a player, he was supreme. I mean, I used to watch him on um, the live Italia games on uh, a Sunday afternoon. <coughs> and what and I saw him in the World Cups with Holland. What, what, what a player. But to deny, I think, with hindsight... Rud Hullett wanted to be the star, even when he was the player. And anybody that challenged him to be the star in his club got put down. And as a way of putting Alan Shearer down, was he ended up with Rob Lee, his best, best pal. Didn't even have a shirt number. 1999-2000 season, he wasn't even had a shirt number in the squad, a bit like we've just had, but it wasn't vindictive in the case of, of Kieran Clark and... Uh, Isaac Hayden, we just had too many players. But this was a superstar that didn't have a shirt number. Um, I mean, the, the, the funny thing with him, he was a shipping clerk, and not many people remember. I mean, Rob, when he started, was a shipping clerk, and he was a turnstile operator at the Valley. Can, and where he went on, to before he turned pro with the club, and he made more than 300 appearances for them. Um, but a quality player, a good leader of men, simply because... He just took one look at him and said, he can play, he knows the game. And he, he got uh, a good response out of the players. Always going to suffer because his best mate happened to be who he was. 
Sir John Hall often remarks that Rob Lee was his best ever signing as Newcastle United owner. And you can you can see why when you look at his record and listen to what John has just said there. Definitely, I can see why he's in this list at number nine. We go on to number eight and we're going back quite a bit here. John, who have you yeah. gone for? Colin Veach. We're going back to the, the first great era of Newcastle United, which was the Edwardian side. So you're about your 10th birthday then? Um, I think I was only about six or seven at the time. I'm 125. Yeah, about <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, by reputation, can you think of a greater leader? I mean, he was a true leader of men in life, not just in football. Um, in life, uh, he was a school. Think of the variation. Try to think in the context of today's players, and think of a player today that had this sort of CV. He was a school teacher, a musician, an actor, a journalist, and a footballer par excellence. This is what he did. He was a playwright, producer, and composer at Newcastle's People Theatre. He was a conductor of the Newcastle Clarion Choir and a member of the Newcastle Operatic Society. He was married to a well-known actress of the, gray, of the day, Greta Burke, he was a friend of George Bernard Shaw. Uh, his ability as a footballer, he played in four cup finals for Newcastle United in four different positions. Inside left, centre forward, centre half and right half. He won six England caps once as captain, so he's captained England. He only won six England caps because he played in so many positions they didn't know where to flip and pick him because he didn't make one position his own. Four cup finals, four different positions. He suffered from that. He played 322 games for Newcastle, scored 49 goals, won three championships, 1905, 1907, 1909, one FA Cup, 1910, and four other finals, 05, 06, 08, and 1911. Can you believe that? From, from 1905 to 1911, Newcastle played in five cup finals, as well as winning the First Division Championship three times. That's how good this side was. Um, and while he was not always skipper of the great Edwardian sides, he will always go down in history because he was the first United skipper to lift the FA Cup in 1910. Uh, and his influence was so much that the committee, board of directors, if you like, who picked the team, what a weird way of doing it in those days, actually asked... Colin Veach to take part in team selection because he, he was so clever tactically. Oh, and by the way, out of all the things I said, he was he was also the Players' Union chairman, which proved he was a leader of men yet again. So to ignore Colin Veach would be to ignore history. Mm. You've just got to look at that CV. And s By the way, everything he did there, from the choir to the operatic society to um, an actor, a journalist, he was a journalist with us. And he got, uh, ironic, isn't it? He got banned from St. James's Park after being a legendary player because he was uh, too honest in some of his appraisals, uh, too critical in the, in the paper. Uh, so he was a man of many, many parts and a master of them all. 
Mm. And he was also a lieutenant as well during the oh, First World War. Yes, he was. Yes, so he was. I mean, it's easier to list what he wasn't, <laughs> which was possibly a bus conductor and something else. But I mean, uh, and wasn't down the pits. But I mean, that's about all he didn't do. He was phenomenal, really phenomenal. And what's really interesting, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion recently about statues and naming of stands mm. now that takeover has happened. Mm. And, you know, people who listen to the podcast know I'm a big advocate of Joe Harvey potentially getting a stand named after him. Yep. But a lot of people come back and actually mention Colin. They say, you know, if you're looking for someone who is Mr. Newcastle, then this chap here who was part of all these sides that won things, he's up there, he's got his own flag when, you know, war flags get all the, the legends out. And, the flag and, and, that, the... and that's quite amazing, Andrew. And that, that tells you a lot about Colin Beach because you were saying right at the start when we are talking about the top goals, history twice tends to sweep you under the carpet eventually you know i mean there's a great argument for we haven't had a greater center forward than Huey gallagher and that includes uh alan shearer and supermac nobody can argue that point because there's nobody around really that saw Huey gallagher and his pump and and so history tends to sweep you and if you go back this far 1905 to 1911 nobody knows so i mean his the list on his cv is so huge that everybody's got to understand that but that is the trouble with and i don't know how much i'm a statue man i'm a great believer in it and I'm, I'm thrilled that jackie had one i i opened it on behalf of the chronicle the jackie one when it was unveiled i was the the guy standing in northumberland street on the mic with Laurie, his, his wife and I'm pleased that Alan Shearer is back inside and etc. etc. But you know, if you took if a club's gone 130 years, you could have 130 statues because and all would, would have a reason to be justified in Column Beach. You could have a statue of the 11 that were in the um, never mind the entertainers 11, the 11 that won all these um titles and cups in 1905 they'd worry you could put statues i mean mccracken could deserve one Veach could deserve one huey gallagher could if you took what they did but they get sweep and these are the sort of guys that will get knocked down the list of mm. if, if, uh captains because age tends history tends to make you lose or forget Mm. It's it's nice to be able to go back and give a brief little history lesson to those who maybe have never even heard of yes, Colin Veach. You know, war flags when they did um, a certain display, they wanted to to give a little bit of a lesson. The David Kelly tribute. You, should, you need to acknowledge our history because yeah. if you look at that nineteen the, the nineteen hundred to nineteen eleven site, won everything. We have never been that successful again. We've been successful. We won twenty seven. We won the, the first division title. We won a European trophy three but times. Dom dominance. But this, the this dominance, is dominance that side had was and absolutely massive. They were bigger than than Manchester City and Liverpool are now. Hmm. And he just sounds like a proper leader. All them things you mentioned, but you know, when you do speak to to Paul Jones at the the club historian, you know, he talks highly of him. And those who maybe have heard the stories that's been passed down by their, their, their dad or their granddad. Absolutely. People just speak so highly of him and it's just his leadership qualities. He was a proper leader. Absolutely, absolutely right. So he had to be in the list uh, of a top ten and would have um, been disrespectful not to put him in. Going on to number seven, and you've gone for Stan Arneson. Yeah, yeah. And Sunderland player as well. Oh, I was going to say, you know, each one of these has something unique about them. I mean... We've just done Colin Veach, and everything's unique about him. 
because of what he did off the park elsewhere. And for Stan Anderson to become one of the greatest skippers of Newcastle United ever is phenomenal. And by the way, anybody that played on them will tell you that that is true. Um, it, it, it's because the monumental change in scenery, um, this guy coming to St James's Park and the instant impact he made, and had to be an impact because he was only here two seasons. He was a Sunderland legend, and believe you me, to this day remains a legend at Sunderland. He, play, he was there for 14 years, played a record 447 League and Cup games with Sunderland and won two England caps. He was an absolute legend there. Not only did he make the switch to Newcastle United, and we've said how difficult that switch, if you play for Sunderland, you're not liked at Newcastle. Vicky Verky, when Lee Clark went from Newcastle to Sunderland. This guy made that, and he was a Sunderland legend. He didn't just pass through Sunderland. He was absolutely red and white. If you cut him open, he's like a stick of rock. He was red and white. He came to Newcastle, and I remember talking to him, Joe Harvey brought him to Newcastle. Now, it was A, very brave of Joe to do that, and B, very brave of Stan to allow it to happen. I remember talking, because I got to know Stan well and had stayed friends with him during his retirement. We've lost him now, bless him. But I remember talking to him and saying, Stan, it was quite phenomenal what you did. What's the background? And he said, he said, Kibble, he said, from the age of 15 to 29, he, he was at Sunderland. He said, I could have walked blindfolded from my house, he was born in Horden, to my, my peg in the dressing room. Uh, and my sudden breakdown, he said, with Sunderland, left me bewildered and unhappy. He was absolutely decimated. Alan Brown was the Sunderland manager at the time, had a reputation as tough as teak. Nobody challenged Alan Brown. He ran it with a, a an iron fist. He was a total dictator. And... Sunderland that particular season needed one point at home to Chelsea, one point to win promotion back into the top flight under the captaincy of Stan Anderson. Unbelievably, they lost at home to Chelsea 1-0 when they just needed one point and they didn't come up. Brown immediately, you know, is it a case of, well, it's not my fault, but it's my fault if I do nothing about it, so I shoot the, the, the guy that's in charge on the pitch. So he so he promptly sold Alan Brown sold Anderson because they didn't make promotion and sold him up the road to to Newcastle, um, and when I got to know him at Newcastle, when he left Newcastle after two seasons, he said it was the best move of my life coming to Newcastle. I adored Sunderland. I'd been brought up a Sunderland fan, but this was the best move in my life. It was my happiest time in football. Can you imagine saying that when he was a Sunderland legend? My happiest time in football was here, he said. He said his missus and his dad refused to talk to him when he went home and said he was signing for Newcastle because they were fervent Sunderland fans. They both refused to talk to him. His missus and his dad... He said, but in the two years I was at Newcastle, his old man became Joe's best mate and they drank together in the boardroom at St James's Park. He says Joe was a man's man. He was a man's man with me dad and he was a man's man with me. And, you know, if you think how tough 
life can be. You're coming from Sunderland, where you're an absolute legend, to Newcastle United to try to get them the promotion that you didn't get Sunderland. And what does Joe, Joe, he doesn't just sign you, but what does he do? He takes a captaincy off Jim Eiley and gives it to Stan Anderson. It's hard enough coming into St. James's Park after after 14 years at Sunderland with, without you immediately getting the backup of the current skipper by saying, by the way, you're not skipper anymore, Stan's going to be skipper. Um, and Newcastle went up as champions. They went up as champions with the famous halfback line of Anderson, McGrath and Eiley. Now, it mightn't surprise you to know that Anderson and Eiley didn't get on. I think James didn't in, didn't think too much about getting the captaincy taken off him from th- this new guy who was in the twilight of his career, supposedly, in uh, 14 years at Sunderland. And really, Anderson and Eiley... Ando tried to play it down later on and said, well, you don't have to get on with everybody in your team. You've just got to be able to play together. And there were two supreme players. But they, they never... It got to the age they wouldn't talk to each other. <laughs> and big John McGrath, who was the centre-half, who was a very good pal of mine and one of the funniest guys he could ever wish to meet, he acted as interpreter. As, you know, Stan would say to, to McGrath, hey... Tell Ali to tuck in when I go for one, we can't both go up. And then he say, hey, tuck in, Jim. And Jim say, you can tell Ando that if, I'm, if I see him a hole, I'm going for it, and he can make his own arrangement. So old McGrath did the bit in the middle, uh, but it was very, very successful. And if and Ando said to this day, and he, he was quite amazing, you know, because he, he ended up, he captained Newcastle, Sunderland and Middlesbrough. How many people have done that? The three top northeast clubs, and he captained all three. And um, if if you ask, and to this day, until he died, he mentioned, he always said, the happiest time I had in football was the two years in Newcastle. And all the kids that came through at that time, and we had an awful lot of future stars there, Pop Robson, David Craig, Frank Clark, Bob Munker, all pay lip service to Ando and say when he was captain, he was terrific. It was when Joe Harvey went to sign him, do you think Joe Harvey was looking for someone in his mould? We know how good of a captain Joe Harvey was. Yes. It w- he w- wasn't no, he wasn't in his mould, mate. To be truthful, uh, Moncur was in his mould. Yeah. Uh, because he didn't bellow on the pitch. Um, you, you know, he wasn't the leader. Joe Harvey was a verbal leader. And Joe Harvey terrified people. Because he had a blue chin and he, he looked as if he was going to chin you. If, if he said tuck in here and you didn't tuck in, you were expecting Desperate Dan to come across with his stick his cow pie in your face. You know, he was that sort. And Ando wasn't. Um, Ando, bless him, uh, and he'd become a good film, but would appear, and it was false, but would appear to be miserable. You know, he, 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 was, he was sort of, he was, he was a bit on the doer side. But. He knew the game. He was terrific in the dressing room. He, he had great, great ability. Um, and he spent a lot of time, as I said, Rhoda did with Gascoigne. He spent a lot of time with young players at in the side. And he loved the manager. And Joe was great at man-managing players. He knew what was wrong with Anderson and what was right with Anderson. And the arm round him, etc., etc., worked, and um, he got the best out of Stan. 
And how crucial was Stan's leadership in getting Newcastle promoted? Without a shadow of doubt. Without a shadow of doubt. He was the perfect foil that was needed. And if we had a, and when you think of the massive problems that had to be solved immediately for Newcastle to go up, which is taking a Sunderland legend, bringing him into the club, then sacking a very respected playmaker, Jim Eiley, as skipper, and, and putting Anderson in, and then having Anderson winning him over so much, so quickly, as, as the manager, that, you see, Joe was clever. He knew that he, he hadn't got on with Alan Brown. So his next manager, if he got on greatly with him, and Joe put him out, Joe would play golf with him. He become he's the skipper of the side and the manager. They went out and played golf every week together. He brought him in his office and sat him down in his office. He said, "Stan, come in the office. We'll have a cup of tea." And they would both get a mug of tea apiece and sit and chew the fat. And then he'd say, "Stan, Wednesday, we'll go up to Backworth or, or the city in Newcastle. Or we'll play a few rounds of golf." Um, he was very, very clever. Was was Joe? And he really got the best out of a very, very good player who, with hindsight, probably stayed that little bit too long at Sunderland. They went sour, and what a shame that was. But uh, we got the best. On to number six, then. And it is a legend of the club like Glenn Rora. You know, uh-huh. he was a brilliant player. He came back and managed. Had slightly better success than Glenn Rora did. <laughs> it is Kevin Keegan. Kevin Keegan, absolutely. I mean, this was the start of... A great love affair uh, between Newcastle and Keegan. Uh, like Stan Anderson, he only played a year two years. Stan Anderson only played two years. Kevin Keegan only played two years. He later come back as a manager, as we all know, and created the entertainers and is cemented in Newcastle's history because the last club Kevin Keegan played for was Newcastle United, and the first club he managed was Newcastle United, uh, and the love affair has lasted uh, to these days. Um, he was involved in the most exciting period in Newcastle's history, and it must be remembered, when he came to Newcastle, we were so down in the dumps, it was untrue. We were low in the snake's belly. We were in the second division, second part of the table, drifting, going nowhere fast. When it was announced that... Kevin Keegan had signed for Newcastle. Russell Cushing was the was the secretary of Newcastle. He got up at a press conference that called at the Gosford Park and said, very embarrassingly, because he must have been told to say it, and he looked very uncomfortable saying it, because he said, where in heaven we've got Kevin? And, uh, you know, as he wasn't a flamboyant extrovert, he always he looked very embarrassed saying it, but... Uh, you know, somebody spread him the line. And we were in heaven. And from that moment, the the crowd, nobody was going to St. James's Park by the diodes, the real, real diodes. And there was queues three times around the ground for season tickets for for everything because the impact was phenomenal. This guy was captain of England. He, he, he was captain of England. 
he'd got Southampton second top in the league when Southampton had no right to be second top when you think of Southampton. Uh, he'd, he'd gone over to Hamburg and got European Player of the Year twice. He'd won the European Cup with Liverpool. He was ginormous. And he was signed for Newcastle, a team of uh, going nowhere and going nowhere fast. Uh, you know, we went from being a sleeping giant to wall, to wall excitement. Twice, really, twice under, under, um, as a player and as a manager. And it was it was Coxie that, that, got, him, that got him here. I mean... We've told all the Keegan tales so many times. There's no need to tell them again. And Lowy, I'll always be grateful to Lowy McManmy because he gave me the exclusive thing off. that's coming. Um, and we know... It, and <sighs> things always had to be right with Kevin. And we've, we've found that out. And that's fair enough. And we found that out more when he became manager. Hmm. But it, it was the same when he was a player. So when Keegan came in, all that fanfare, all the surprise... I'm guessing, John, there was there was never any doubt that he would be handed the armband. Oh, absolutely none whatsoever. Uh, he was not only the star name, a name so much bigger in Newcastle was absolutely untrue. Uh, Newcastle at the time, uh, absolutely untrue, but he was England skipper. He was, uh, you know, he was a natural leader of men and he was always going to get it and he was like a Pied Piper everybody come and, and join Newcastle because Keegan was here and and it was worth doing um, but he, he he was the sort of guy he always knew what he wanted he was single minded uh, he was stubborn um, he expected to get his own way but then superstars do and, and, and often they do get their own way and did he did he bark? Was he a man who gave orders out on the pitch, or was it kind of he set the bar in terms of what he did? Yes, he did. It, well, he was so bubbly in the dressing room. He didn't bark in the way that Monker and, and, and Harvey would. He, but he he, he was a rallying point. Uh, he was bubbly. The the why players took to him because he was so full of enthusiasm. When he got up in the morning, before he drew the curtains, he knew it wouldn't be raining. The sun would be shining because he was a, a, a glass half full, not half empty sort of guy. But, you know, he famously come out as a manager and said uh, it wasn't the way it was in the bush. Uh, that could sum up Keegan's life because he would... He would have a brochure the way things were going to be and they better be that way. And in his first season with Newcastle, Arthur Cox was still building the side. It w because Keegan wasn't the final piece of the jigsaw. He was like the, one of the first pieces of the jigsaw. So the, the side was still being built. So we didn't win promotion in the first season. But he went to the manager and said, look, I'll stay on for another season, but only if we are going to make a serious attempt to win promotion. And to do that, I need to play up top with a player who's got a terrific touch that wants the ball played into his feet and is comfortable when it's played into his feet and then can play with me. He had Ray Verardi as centre forward at the time who scored a pile of goals in the second division. Huge goal scorer. But his second touch was a tackle. He, he hadn't instant control of the ball. Verardi was decimated when he got elbowed out of Newcastle because he wasn't the type that Keegan wanted to play with. And he, he, he gave Arthur Cox this uh, critique of what is needed in my partner. And Arthur Cox went out and got Peter Beardsley. And um, 
Kevin Keegan's told me afterwards, he said, I'm sitting in the dressing room and this little lad comes in and he said, and I thought he was an autograph hunter, he said, he's a little fella with a, with a very young face and he said, oh, the, who's him? He said, that's in, the new guy that's going to play with you. Bear in mind that he'd come from Vancouver Whitecaps and before that he'd been at Carlisle, so he wasn't a superstar at that time, but by Jove he was going to be one. Uh, and bear in mind that KK's small and, and, and Bates is small, he said, me, he said he's going to be the guy that's going to play with you. He said, believe you me, never mind looking at me. I tell you, he said, and I went out on the training pitch and played in the first sort of game, practice game with him, he said, I thought, oh, 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 this will do for me. And, of course, they stayed very much close, close friends. And he signed him again as a manager for the entertainers. Mm. I'm just wondering, in your view, is there a difference between like a, a natural-born leader and someone who's a superstar? And that superstar uh, kind of presence yeah, gets people into yes, the line. Yes, there's a huge difference. Um, the natural superstar will lead because he commands instant respect because of who he is, whether that's David Beckham or whether it's Kevin Keegan or or whoever. The leader that's got the authority on the pitch, lets everybody know it, barks out orders, commands people to do something, needn't be a great player. Joe Harvey wasn't a silky player. He, he was anything but a silky player. He killed, he killed people that could play, but he couldn't necessarily play himself. Um, Bob Moncur wasn't a Tony Green or a Peter Beardsley. He, he was a very effective player and a wonderful player at the back, but he wasn't a, he wasn't a Philip Albert as a defender that was very comfortable on the ball, etc., etc. But he could bark orders. So, yeah, yeah man who's a natural leader because he's tough and he organises is not necessarily a great player. Nobody'd pretend Joe Harvey was a great player, etc., uh, etc. Et People like Kevin Keegan, the aura that they had, whether you give them the armband or not, people will look to him on the pitch to see what should happen and what shouldn't happen. A massive, massive difference in the two. If you can get two to go together, superstar who is a barker as well and by Jove you've got your breads buttered on both sides mm. um, but I mean the interesting thing with Keegan is that he's this loyal guy he's very loyal to you and uh, to people that are loyal to him until you cross him the first time and then you never see him again but outside of that very early Newcastle side that he came into as captain and as player he formed very close liaisons which lasted when he come the second time, etc., etc. I mean, in that side, he played with Peter Beardsley, who he adored and who he signed again. Peter adored him twice as much and, and signed him again for the entertainers. Terry McDermott was in that side with him when he was skipper. Terry McDermott become his girlfriend, his number two, uh, as when he was manager. And Arthur Cox, who was his boss, came back when Keegan was managing Newcastle as part of the backroom staff. So all three of them were very much part of Newcastle the second time round with Keegan. And I guess the next question will apply to, to, to all captains, but you've mentioned it there kind of with Keegan, the element of trust. So yeah. How important, and not just to Keegan, but how important to a captain you think the word trust is and the meaning of that? 
Oh, it's huge. It's huge because, and it's the other way on. The, the, the rest of the team have got to feel they can trust the skipper, that, that he will be in the trenches with them, and if necessary, he will die with them for the cause. They've got to believe that um, to get the best out of them. If you've got a skipper that's uh, two-faced, that, that's going to say one thing uh, to your face, another thing to the manager when he's in the... Uh, in the uh, boardroom or the manager's office um, is very different once he's found out you haven't got a great future in the game uh, trust has got to be a two way street um, between the skipper and the team that he's playing for and of course he is the absolute bridge between manager and dressing room uh, that uh, glues them everyone together and the amazing thing was on the Keegan side you know we, we talk the side that won promotion the second year as skipper and won promotion. We talk these days, all the fancy phrases we come out with tactically and we talk about false number nines, which means, in effect, you haven't got an orthodox centre-forward. I mean, way, way before false number nines was coined as a phrase, Newcastle had false number nines in that side because the forward line was was uh, Waddle, Keegan and Beardsley. There wasn't an orthodox centre-forward in that line. They just all interchanged. Newcastle played with a false number nine before we knew what a false number nine was uh, in that Kagan side. So there's nothing new in tactics. There's new phrases, but there's not new tactics. They've all happened before. Newcastle way ahead of time as usual. That is going to be the end of part one. So what we'll do is we'll just run through Glenn. Uh, Glenn I was going to say Glenn there because I'm looking at my list. There. I've got Glenn Moore at the top. <laughs> we'll run through John's uh, 10 to 6. So we've got Glenn Roder at number 10, Rob Lee at number 9, Colin Beach at number 8, Stan Anderson at number 7, and as you've just heard, Kevin Keegan at number 6. It's been a pleasure to talk through these first five. Listen out on the Everything is Black and White podcast channel for part two coming very soon.